episode of Behind the Lens. And hey, if you're tuning in right now, I think you definitely want to jump on to your Facebook live stream of AdrenalineRadio.com and check us out today. Normally I tell you, you don't really need to take a look. It's just me sitting here talking. Uh, We always have some great tablescapes, but we have a roaring good tablescape today celebrating the Lion King. And hopefully when Pam gets back to her little Mevo, she can even zoom in with a close-up of some of the stuff and uh, so everybody can see it uh, off the top of the bat. I've got to thank the, the great folks at Disney. Jess, my dear Jessica, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and the wonderful Mr. Iger. So fabulous, fabulous stuff, swag that uh, the press got. Uh, but for those of you that haven't figured it out yet, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line, talking to the movers and shakers, the directors, the writers, the cinematographers, the composers, production designers, costumers, talent, uh, and everything in between. Uh, Every week, you can find me Mondays, 11 a.m., 2 p.m. on AdrenalineRadio.com. It's 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, We've got an international audience. I want to give a big shout out to our live listeners in Poland, Italy, and Moscow. Thank you guys for tuning in again uh, this morning. Very excited to have uh, my international crowd tuning in every week. And, you know, if you miss Behind the Lens Live, you can always... You can listen to every single episode of the past five and a half years. Um, You can find it on BehindTheLensOnline.net, along with movie reviews and interviews. Uh, You can also find the show archived on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and so many more. And, of course, on the AdrenalineRadio.com website. But I'm so excited about today's show because it is a show of... Lions and orcas and surfers, oh my. Uh, And if you are watching on the Facebook live stream now, you will see we have Simba, we have Timon. Well, we have my mascot, Anger, of course. Uh, And I even broke out my celebratory Lion King shirt with the animated Pumbaa, Timon, and Simba. Uh, Exciting live guests today. I'm so thrilled. We've got Aaron Lieber, writer-director Aaron Lieber, is joining us live to talk about Bethany Hamilton, Unstoppable. You all remember Bethany Hamilton. She was the young girl back in 2003, professional surfer. Her arm was, uh, she, shark attack, lost her left arm, uh, and she was the subject of the movie Soul Surfer. Well, now, this is a documentary catching up with her uh, since that time, and she is now a wife a mother of two, and a world champion. So it's a beautiful, beautiful documentary. I mean, who doesn't love watching the ocean 
and the curl of the waves. Um, and sticking with the water, uh, we're also going to have with us live Bill Neal, writer-director of Long Gone Wild. Again, Blackfish took the world by storm, turned the ocean quarry, the ocean aquarium world, marine theme parks on its head, changed a lot of the laws and created laws protecting orcas, removing them from captivity. Um, this is a fascinating documentary uh, because while we're making strides here in the West on protecting and keeping orcas in the wild, Russia and China aren't doing too, too well. And for everything that we're shutting down in the West, China is opening up new theme parks, uh, marine theme parks with performing orcas right and left. So an incredible documentary, an important documentary, um, put, gets you ahead of history when you take note of something like this. So I'm so excited to have Aaron and Bill joining me shortly. But right now, we're going to Pride Rock uh, and talk about The Lion King. And yes, 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 I love this film. Long live the king. This is glorious, majestic, and masterful. Many have said, why remake the animated? Well, in this case, because technology was developed that said we can and put a new spin on it. And thanks to director John Favreau, who dazzled us with his live action, quote unquote, VR uh, interpretation of the Jungle Book, he now brings us The Lion King, uh, a completely virtual production. Um, done through the HTC Vive virtual reality system and now implementing gaming technology um, using the Unity game engine. This, what this does is it actually puts the filmmakers inside the VR world. So when you're seeing cinematography, it's because cinematographer Caleb Deschanel was actually inside this VR world and able to place cameras set lights uh it's this is cutting edge and it is phenomenal the visuals are unparalleled in the lion king the vo vocal performances are great um, but for my money the real standout comes from Hans zimmer's score and not just the score because much of the score harken is taken from it's the original score but there are new elements it's the orchestration that makes this stand out. The emotionality of this film comes from Zimmer's orchestration of the score for The Lion King. Um, rich, lush, uh, great gravitas, emotional gravitas. It's the, it is the score. In addition to the singular songs that we hear, familiar ones and some new ones. Um, but for my money, the emotion, the connective tissue of The Lion King comes from Hans Zimmer. Uh, I was very, and then compounding that is the sound design and the sound mix. Um, Favreau has just done an exemplary, exemplary job. It is a masterful uh, work. And during the recent press day, John actually talked about 
this new, this VR technology and the Unity game engine platform. And he got a little bit of help from J.D. McCrary, who voices young Simba. Take a listen to what John had to say. Jungle Book, you know, I've been working on both these movies back to back for about six years. And all the new technology that was available, uh, I had finally learned how to use it by the end of Jungle Book. And, and at that point, with the team that we had uh, assembled for it, all the artists, because a, uh, a lot of attention is paid to the, the technology, but really these are handmade films. There's animators working on every shot. Uh, every environment that you see in the film, uh, other than actually there's one shot that's a real photographic shot, but everything else is built from scratch by artists. And we had a great team assembled, and then the idea of using what we learned on that and the new technologies that were available to make a story like Lion King with its great music, great characters, and great story seemed like a really a, a wonderful, logical conclusion. And so that was something we set out to do. There was a whole slew of VR, uh, consumer-facing VR products that were hitting the scene. And we started experimenting with it at the end of Jungle Book and realized that we could build this really cool system of filmmaking using game engine technology and, and this new VR technology. And so we essentially were writing code as we were going for a multiplayer VR filmmaking game and that way I could bring in film, uh, people who don't have any background in visual effects. We would design the entire environments. We, would pre we took all the recordings that we had from, from the actors. We would animate within the game engine. In this case, it was Unity. And the crew would be able to put on the headsets, go in, scout, and actually set cameras within VR. And whenever anybody visited, I would pop them into the, to the equipment. It's like watching your favorite movie. But everything, like, you're in it. You're in the movie. That, that's, exactly what it, that's exactly what it was. You did an amazing job with this. So, <laughs> so it was me and Shahadi, Mr. Favreau. Yeah. We put on the headsets. We had these little controller things in our hands. And we, we were could, just, we could fly. It was, it was like we were Zazu. We, we were birds. We were whatever we wanted to be. And we saw everything. We saw the Pride Lands. We saw it. Pride Rock, we saw the watering hole, we saw the elephant graveyard, we saw it all, man. And it was so cool. It was so cool. Very specific VR game that only works for making one movie. <laughs> but that's okay in my book. A VR game that is designed to, for making this one movie. Um, the one thing about the technology that, you know, still needs some development and this is, you know, no, it's not a, a fallacy or a, a failing or, or a criticism uh, because the technology is astounding that, a pro, that something like this can be turned out. It needs some work on, ca on creating the emotionality, that glint in the eye. Um, that's something that, anim that you see in the animated Lion King that you don't see here. Granted, in scenes of animals attacking, Mufasa is defending uh, Simba. Uh, yes, the, you get the, the physical musculature. You get the rage with the open mouth and the teeth bared. And the roar, the sound of the roar. Uh, that, you know, is emotionality. But for these, you know, shots that we're looking at, you've got a uh, frontal uh, you know, a close-up portraiture of Timon, a meerkat. Um, there's that little twinkle that you you're used to seeing in Nat Geo, uh, in the live 
live, you know, capturing of animals in the wild. That little bit, that little bit is missing. Uh, however, I do expect within a short amount of time, the VR and the gaming engines will, technology will bump up again. And then that problem, that little missing link will be resolved, which is why it is so important when you have something like the lushness and the emotionality and majesty that comes from Hans Zimmer's orchestrations and from your sound mix. And of course, this is a Dolby Atmos film. Uh, you've heard me talk a, l a lot about Dolby Atmos the past few months. And remember, you've got sound with Dolby Atmos is defined as individual objects. And you can manipulate up to 128 objects at one time uh, in a Dolby Atmos situation, in an Atmos situation. And here, the minutia of nature that we hear and the balance, um, the, you know, butterflies, the wings, a, a little kickada. Uh, Katie did's making little clicking sounds, uh, a dung beetle, uh, rolling dung, and then cracking it open. Um, just the padding of paws, the gallop uh, of a stampede of hundreds of water buffalo. Every sound is so beautifully presented. And the authenticity is almost overwhelming. It is so immersive. Um, so this is a strong, this is, a, this is, you know, one of those balancing acts. You may lose a little bit in this one aspect of visuals, but then it just amps it up for the other artisans, uh, working in sound and with composing. And speaking about composing, you've got to hear Hans Zimmer talk about, because that that's my big thing with this film is the orchestrations, the emotionality and majesty. Uh, majesty of Hans Zimmer's orchestrations of the score for The Lion King. Take a listen. Well, congratulations, everyone. John, masterful job with this one. One of the things that impressed me most about The Lion King, this go-round in this live-action version, is how the emotionality truly comes from Hans's score, and most particularly, the orchestration. And hand-in-hand hand with that, the sound mix, John, because as lush and rich majestic as the score is, we have the nuance of nature within the sound mix. So I'm curious how you went about opening up this score to really bring it home and, John, find that balance so we still get all the nuance of this world. Well, John saw what Lebo and I did. Um, there came a point in my life where somebody said to me, you can't hide behind a screen for the rest of your life. You've got to go out and look people in the eye. And we ended up t dragging an orchestra and a choir out of Coachella and doing Lion King Life. And there was an energy about doing it as a performance and doing it live in that way that uh, moved John, and actually, to be really honest, it moved me too, because it was great seeing all these amazing musicians really playing it as a piece, you know, as, as music as opposed to, oh, we got to do a, we have to be specific about a film cue. So I said to John, why don't we do it like this? Why don't we get all the greatest players, get my band, get the greatest players in the world, um, make a new orchestra here in Los Angeles, rehearse them for two days, and then really make it as if it was a concert. And we invited all the filmmakers that never get to come to those scoring sessions, you know, the DP and the editors and everybody. 
got them into the room, sat them in front of the orchestra, so the orchestra knew there was a bit of, you know, you know they had to live up to something here. Yeah. And we just went for it. But I mean, one of the things, if you want to talk about news, the, the news comes from the very, very, very beginning, and the very first idea, which was, I wanted to make a Disney movie that started off with a voice from Africa and the black. And that is really my friend, Lebo M here, that something shifted, that everything shifted over into this continent. And with this voice, you know, I would invite you on a journey. That's all, that's all I was trying to do. Just, you know, come along, come, come along and, and feel this, feel this other continent. And don't ever forget this continent. And what, when did we do this? We started in 92 or something like that. What was sort of pertinent and important then has become somehow more urgent and more important. And, you know, David Attenborough has shown us, you know, where, where nature is going. And, you know, and, and when, when we did the original one, I mean, you know, it really was very, the political climate in South Africa was very, very tricky. It was so tricky, in fact, because I had a police record, they wouldn't let me go for those last sessions and Lebo went by himself because everybody, there was a meeting at Disney who would finish the movie when Hans got killed, you know, and I was, yeah, and, and, and I was appalled that they wouldn't let me go. I was appalled by the common sense people were showing because, you know, you get so invested in something. But the, 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 the way the movie sounds, I mean, the openness is, is partly, it's everybody, here's the difference between a normal movie score and this. Everybody who played in the orchestra, and it's a very special orchestra, knew the, the movie. So every note was played with intention. Every note was played with commitment. And I think that ultimately helps, you know, everybody. It's, it's not just people reading things off a, paper, a piece of paper. They knew the material. And the rest, you know, John's a really good director, but there's one thing that he keeps bringing to the party, constantly bringing, which is, this man has a huge heart, and that huge heart constantly resonates within the music. And I think, I, I think not just the intellectual John, who is able to pull amazing things out of technology, but the emotional John brings so much to this score. You know, I mean, really, honestly, I thank him for letting me lose, letting us lose. And that was Hans Zimmer talking about the live orchestration, uh, and what makes this score so spectacular for The Lion King. The Lion King is in theaters this Friday. Thank you for my annual birthday present, Disney. Um, but right now, we're going to move from the Pride Lands to the oceans and say hello to Aaron Lieber. Hi, Aaron. Hi, how's it going? It's going. How's it going with you? Oh my gosh, it's been a crazy opening weekend, and we did a bunch of Q&As. It was so fun to finally release Stephanie Hamilton Unstoppable and Beaters. I mean, this is, uh, yeah, I was utterly amazed with this film. I can't believe that your original intention was to have this as a short, because I'm watching this film, and when it ended, oh, I could, I could have kept going. It's the, your last half of the film your last 45 minutes that really focuses on Bethany after 
we last saw her story with Soul Surfer, uh, be it her book or the narrative film. This is her now, maturity, married, uh, a mother, now a mother of two, I believe, and competing and just watching. Just You've got a training monta- montage in there that you could pull that out and make it its own music video. It is outstanding. It's beautiful. <laughs> and there is nothing as fabulous as just watching these rolling, curling, and majestic waves uh, under the guise of your lens and Bethany's story. Abs- How you ever thought you could have done this as a short is beyond me because you could have added yeah. you could have added more to from what it is now. I know. Well, we actually had like a four hour cut of the film, and we just you know no one wants to watch four hours straight, so we dwindled it down to an hour and a half. And you're absolutely right. The, that last forty five minutes was really the focus of the first six minutes. That was, and then as we were kind of putting it together, we realized we needed to have the context of all the amazing archives her family um, captured when she was younger. And it really gives that emotional arc and kind of quantifies her, you know, athletic prowess from such a young age to even to now and how she just has continued to overcome and supersede all expectations. And yeah, I think the story is just very inspirational. And, you know, she became very famous from the incident and her book and Soul Surfer but no one's really got a chance to see the actual her mm-hmm. and all this and how she's kind of struggled to and, and overcome. So I'm so excited that you enjoyed it and that people now have an opportunity to kind of get re-inspired by the, you know, the real Bethany. Well, you know, and the way you have this documentary structured, it's very cohesive. Um, the first half of the film, you're essentially recapping with some punctuated voiceovers at particular points. Um, but you're essentially recapping most of what the public has already seen and heard. Um, that in and of itself, because of all the archival footage there, and not just from her, fa- her family's uh, private photos and movies, but you've got footage from her all of her public appearances, you know, a snippet here, a snippet there. Just your archival work alone had to have consumed a large amount of time before you even got into shooting all the footage for the second half of the film, not to mention these incredible transition shots that you use as you move through pivotal points in her life of, uh, you know, uh, a clifftop looking out over, over a very calming sea. And when we get to the second half, it's not, it, it's not quite, it's not a sunset shot or close to sunset, a mid-afternoon. It's bright and sunny and very reflective in the second half. You've got a great visual metaphor happening there. Talk, walk me through this oh, wow. process that you, oh, wow, oh, wow, what? Yeah. <laughs> I just love that you just, the, what you, I just don't want to talk. You're selling the film better than I can. <laughs> um, yeah, so I would just give, I want to give a lot of credit to my lead editor, Carol Martori, and my two amazing producers, Penny Edmondson and Jane Kelly Kosek, like, these three women. So I have a background in making surf films, but this is my first, you know, directorial attempt of telling a story at this scale. And so I really felt like I needed, you know, some powerful women voices in this film process. And, and those three women came in and really helped navigate, helped me navigate how to tell a story in the way that you just articulated. And Carol is such a master of 
finding footage that I shot and helping create these metaphors because we just feel like so much of documentaries a lot of times are, you know, kind of tutorial almost in a way. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to speak through a visual language where people could feel something emotionally and, and then take it for however, you know, apply it, whatever is happening in their own lives. And it also relates to Bethany. I think she speaks through action and mm. through her, her athletic prowess. And I think visually you really get to see how she navigates the world through a lot of those subconscious visual messaging. And, and we worked kind of backwards. So I shot all this footage with the intent of just kind of highlighting present day. Mm-hmm. And then once we realized we needed to kind of go back, her family just started sending me boxes and boxes of footage. So we ended up with 500 hours of Skype. <laughs> And we had a team of three, uh, three editors kind of to go through it all. And yeah, it took us about a year to edit the film to get it to the point where um, it is now. And, and then, you know, those transitions you talked about, you know, Dolby came in and sponsored the film and we did this incredible Atmos mix. So those visuals are backed up with the best sound design mm-hmm. that really kind of like captures what you're seeing. And then we also had uh, original score by Chris Bowers who did Green Bus. And so the music is just an, another layer. There's all these layers I really wanted to make sure were there to make it feel like the biggest film it could possibly be. Well, something that you do beautifully is you really have a perfect marriage with your cinematography and your sound design. And I'm so thrilled that it is Atmos. I don't know if you were listening to the first part of the show. Um, that's Sound is such an important element of filmmaking to me. And I'm, I was just talking about Lion King and the sound design there, which was done in Atmos. And the, the 128 singular sound objects that you can work with. So we're hearing the beautiful sound of the surf. You, you'll, you'll hear the birds. I mean, this... You really, yeah. these the little minutia, the the bubbles under the water, and your underwater photography is to die for, Aaron. It is to die <laughs> for. It <Thank> is <laughs> glorious. And then you do some in slow mo. Um, but I ha- I yeah. ha- I have to say I think some of my favorite imagery imagery occurs at the one hour six to one hour ten. Mark, which is where your training montage is, your quote-unquote, your mini music video, you've got black light underwater shots. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, so... Where? Where did this inspiration come from? (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, I mean, yeah, I think I did hear you were talking with Hans Zimmer on the line before. Yeah, so obviously a big fan of all of his work. Um, and yeah, the, the, the night stuff, you know, I just felt like so many of these big documentaries, surf films or action sports film in general, all those, all the guys that have had those over the years always have like something kind of extra and something special. And then, you know, Bethany has this whole night scene of surfing in Soul Surfer and her fans loved that aspect of the mm-hmm. movie. So we kind of came up with this cool idea to incorporate not only just a fun idea, but also something where, you know, she's always just her heart is in surfing. Right. So whether it's day or night, she's kind of going for it. And I, I like to call that scene like the Rocky, the Rocky montage. That's exactly what it <laughs> like is. She's training to, yeah. 
And and so, you know, it was just so fun to have those opportunities and be able to get in the water and shoot. And, um, you know, this has been a lifelong dream of mine to make a surf film or make a, you know, just tell a story on this level and share it with the world. And, and along the way, I got to work with all of my heroes. So a guy named Mike Prickett, He's, he's been a, a big uh, inspiration for me and one of the leading water cinematographers in the world. And so he actually, uh, to fast forward to the end of the film, there's this incredible shot where we start on land and the helicopter moves over the water and kind of catches Bethany mm-hmm. as she's surfing a giant wave at Jaws. Mm-hmm. And it's one continuous shot. And so there's just the journey to make this film, like I, I kind of was the backbone of shooting it and producing and directing but then I was able to bring in so many amazing talented people from Mike Prickett to Carol Martori to Dolby to Chris Bowers all these people that contributed their talents to really elevate the film to what it ended up being. What was the editing process like working with Carol in culling down your 500 hours of archival uh, footage (laughs) developing your through line and then you know taking all of your your fresh footage um, I have to imagine with this, with the amount of surf footage and just ocean footage that you have, it, it had to be a, a situation of kill your darlings at some point. Oh my gosh, that's exactly what we called it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it totally was. So we, Carol came down and I had mapped out a like a three-act structure based on what I felt would work. And so then she came down and we made three by five cards with a bunch of different scenes and different concepts. And we would use the wall of my house and we'd move things around and play with it and figure out what we wanted to do. For four days, we just brainstormed with three by five cards. And then from there, I had all the interviews transcribed and Carol set out to create a paper cut. So Mm -hmm. she started editing everything based on the interviews that I had done and what we had talked about. And yeah, so we just kind of went for it that way. And after about four months, we had a two hour cut that we screened at Red Studios. They let us use their theater and we screened it for a bunch of editors and producers and we got feedback. And that's when we really had to kind of jump in there and start killing the darlings, as you said, and figure out how to get it to an hour and a half. And that process, although painful, it's also really good because you figure out how to say things a little bit quicker and you start to find your through lines and, and, and find how to not be repetitious. And so the film plays very fast that way, which I think is super important to, you know, always be moving forward and driving towards um, something. Oh, the film there, you know, it keeps going. It keeps, you've got a flow that really, it follows the feel of the waves. The continuous circuit, the, yeah. the circuity, the circuity of it, you know, it, it comes and goes, it comes and goes, it ebbs and flows, and it keeps going. And you have that same lyricism with your edit, particularly in the second half of the film. I mean, that is really the showcase of this documentary, is your second, yeah. four, your second 45 minutes. And it is just absolutely breathtaking. I've got. I've got to ask you: Were you a fan of Bruce Brown's "Endless Summer" growing up? Oh yeah, I was a fan <laughs> of Bruce Brown. I used to watch that with my dad. We'd go longboard. I still, my dad and I will still get together and just watch that film. It's amazing. 
And I'm actually friends with um, Pat O'Connell. And um, so it's been cool to actually get to know some of the characters in Endless Summer 2, Endless Summer 2 at least. And, um, and then, yeah, then like, you know, Stacey Peralta, he's been, you know, a big inspiration of mine. And um, Steve James, like Hoop Dreams. So, yeah, there's a lot of different filmmakers over the years growing up that I've looked up to and admired. And um, probably if you watch the film, you kind of see replicating some of their styles in different Mm -hmm. ways. Yeah, it's not every filmmaker that wakes up one day and says, I'm going to make movies about surfing. Female surfers. Yeah. Yeah. So this is actually my third female surf film. I made one for Nike called Leave a Message. Mm-hmm. And then I made another one called Zero to 100, um, Licky Peterson Zero to 100. Mm-hmm. And it was on Netflix for a while. So yeah, one, one film kind of always leads to the next. And I met Bethany on a, on a trip with Licky Peterson. And Licky finished fifth in the world that year. And Bethany was surfing so well. I kind of just pitched Bethany. I was like, hey, let's make this short film and show people what a incredible surfer you are. And once we got started, we, I guess, are slightly overachievers. Well, you <laughs> know, a 90 minute movie well, I've got, I've got to tell you, we only have a couple minutes left here, Aaron, but I've got to tell you, one of the things that really stands out uh, that I, I took great note of is the fact that we really get to see what a partnership she has with her husband, Adam. You, he is very, very, very much a part of her success in her adult life and very much one of the driving forces behind what she does. It's not just her love and the fact that surfing is in her blood, but we really get to see the support that he brings her in this film. It's, it's nuanced. You never stick it in anybody's face. But it's there, and I think that's a really key element to what you're showing us about Bethany. Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad you brought that up. I got to know Bethany before Adam. Mm-hmm. So when he came into her life, what you what you saw in the film, I felt, right? Mm-hmm. Bethany had got this new energy for life, and, and her and Adam coming together was just a beautiful time and still is. You know, they've been together for five years now. They've got two wonderful kids. And yeah, Adam is, is such a rock for her. And he is just the best. I, I call him, uh, my nickname for him is um, Clark Kent. <laughs> I, he's 6'4", and he's like, like Superman, but he's also like the most gentle giant and just so caring and loving and is such a good dad. And we did a we we did a kids book, and he wrote the kids book, and you know so he's just he's got, he's like a jack of all trades. I wanted to get this shot in the film where I'm shooting down and like do a time lapse of all their all their stuff that they travel with, so that people could see in a fun way what what it goes into their travel. So we borrowed a tractor from a friend in Hawaii, and he in one day learned how to drive this tractor, and he put me up 65 feet in the air so I could get this shot and then brought me back down safely. And he had just learned how to do it the day before. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, well, Aaron... So I'm, he's just such a talented human. <laughs> he, I'll tell you. Well, unfortunately, we're all out of time, Aaron. Um, I, oh. I hope you'll come back on the show. I would love to... I, you are so much fun. And there's just so much about this film that is so glorious and so beautiful. And it's in theaters now. So everyone can go see it. Um, 
but please do. I, I would love to talk to you some more. Have you come back on the show and talk about some of your other projects? Oh, my gosh. I would love that. Thank you so much for the kind words and for having me. And, yeah, I hope everybody gets a chance to see it while it's in the big screen. You know, it, it makes a big difference to really feel something with the sound design and music. And, yeah, I think it's super important for young girls to see themselves on the big screen. So I hope they get out and see it. And by the time the film is over, you will be in a perfect mode of zen. Exactly. Oh, Aaron, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Aaron Lieber talking about Bethany Hamilton Unstoppable. And now we're still in the water, people. This time we're in the water with a bunch of orcas and Bill Neal. Hi, Bill. Hi. How are you, Debbie? I am so excited to be talking to you. I am in love with Long Gone Wild. What? Thank you. It's a powerful documentary. It's a beautiful film. And anything that starts and essentially has Rick O'Berry starting and ending, bookending your film, talking with the passion that he has, and, of course, going covert ops once again, as only Rick can do, um, that's a winner in my book. Um, (laughs) This is... You know, Blackfish really brought to the forefront, and especially the whole issue of Tilikum uh, with SeaWorld, but really brought to the forefront and has made great, made great strides and brought public awareness to uh, these marine theme parks and orcas in captivity. As a matter of fact, all cetaceans in captivity. Um, and it really started a movement that is just a groundswell is just kept building and building and building. But like anything else, you need to be reminded every once in a while. And long gone wild is that reminder for all of us to get on the right side of history and to pay attention to what is happening. And while we have made strides, there is a lot more work to be done. Yes, there, there certainly is, and you, you nailed it with Blackfish. It had a very profound effect on uh, people and their awareness of orcas in captivity. Uh, and as I followed the Blackfish effect, uh, you know, it's been six years now since Blackfish came out, believe it or not. And yeah. as I followed the uh, progress, uh, you know, I realized that, uh, well, they did make some changes. They agreed, uh, as you know, to stop their breeding program. So this uh, should be the last uh, group of orcas in captivity. The problem is many of them are very young, so they could be there for many decades. Right. The other change they made was to allegedly phase out performances by 2019 this year, which they really haven't done. What they've done is changed the facade for the audience, mm-hmm. and it is a more educational show than in the past. But the bottom line is the whales are still there, and they're still performing. And they're still in these concrete tanks. And they're still in the concrete tanks, yes, and, swimming in circles. And, you know, this is something that you really, I love the thoughtfulness and the cogency with which you have structured Long Gone Wild. 
Um, you really impart a lot of information to us. You take us back in time to 1965, uh, when the first time an orca was caught. Ted Griffin captured him, put him on display at Namu at the Seattle Aquarium, paid 8000 whole dollars for the whale. I would love to know how much he made off of displaying Namu. But... <laughs> But you take us through uh, a lot of money. You take us through this timeline, so that within a year or between sixty-six and seventy, Griffin was capturing two hundred orcas, and sold them to SeaWorld. Um, some of them, yeah. Some of them, and then yeah, and we keep going up through February twenty ten, when uh, the SeaWorld trainer Dawn was killed by Tilikum, and. Just think about to look at the timeline and to see you lay it out for us. It's very striking how things went from just starting out to a frenzy and how it's had to back down in the course of uh, approximately 50 years. Uh, this is a huge arc. And you unfold this for us so that we can see where we've been, where we are and where we need to go in the future. And how difficult was it? Because you're no stranger to producing. You're no stranger to real-life segments. Uh, you're a producer for E! True Hollywood Stories. You've done L.A. Forensics as a story editor, Unsolved Mysteries. You know how to lay out these stories. But how do you start with a story like this? Well, it is a, it is a big story. It is a big story, obviously, and and what, what I tried to do is is uh, condense condense it as much as possible to keep the viewers, uh, you know, uh, watching and absorbed in the film, and quickly get to what I thought were the real key changes, which is the fact that, as I mentioned, SeaWorld. Uh, is still having the, the, the orcas perform, and then moving on past the whole SeaWorld situation to what's going on in Russia and China, uh, which, of course, is very disturbing. And then, um, you know, the flip side of all of this, uh, which was not to make the story all about doom and gloom, but rather to focus in on the hope that exists now, with the Oil Sanctuary Project. Mm -hmm. uh, as you know, um, you know, SeaWorld had a valid point for many years that uh, people said, well, release the whales. And they said, well, where are they going to go? And the orcas yeah. cannot obviously be dropped, just dropped back into the ocean. They don't know how to hunt. They don't know how to kill. So there needs to be a place for them, and now there is with the Whale Sanctuary Project. So all of that story, I wanted to try to tell and do it in a, as a concise and entertaining and informative way as possible. Well, you've definitely succeeded, and you provide us with experts. We do have some talking heads, but it's not a steady stream of talking heads. And you have judiciously placed the interviews throughout the documentary. Um, it, I mean, we're starting with, obviously, as I said, we start with Rick, one of the most well-known faces, um, going back to the days of Flipper and then his activism that led us to the Cove um, and the Taiji, and the Taiji annual executions of dolphins. Um, 
So we get Rick, and then we've got Jeff Foster, a whale biologist, author David Kirby, Dr. Naomi Rose. Um, she is fascinating. Uh, Jeff Ventry, former senior she, trainer. She's a star, isn't she? <laughs> oh, my God. She truly, yeah. truly is. And then you've got Jeff Ventry, the former senior trainer at SeaWorld. And Jeff has been one of the most visible, vocal uh, activists uh, revolving around the orcas for a number of years now. Um, and I remember when he first started speaking out around the time of Blackfish. And that was, he really became like a poster child for whistleblowing almost on the industry and what was happening. And he has not relented. Um, but then you do, you bring us all the way up to, um, the whale sanctuary project and, it's so exciting for me. I know an attorney who is in David Castleman who is involved in the whale sanctuary sanctuary project, uh, and he brings a wealth of experience to to the table, having created and one of the founders of an elephant sanctuary uh, in Asia, and he worked with mm-hmm. Ashley Bell on her documentary Love and Bananas about the Asian elephants. Mm-hmm. So I see the people that are involved with these groups and. I mean, this is this is top notch, top notch. And you're and you're showing us all of these people and what they're doing. At the same time, you bring in people like uh, Dr. Lori Marino, the neuroscientist who talks about really in layman's terms, explains the the echolocation system within the whales, how it allows them to explore and communicate and that when they're in a tank. Part of it, you send out your your echolocation, the signal, but nothing's coming back to you. And my heart... No, just reverberations. My heart just dropped as she explained that yep. and laid that out. And that, one of the most powerful things that stood out for me within this film. But everything that you have, each thing is as interesting and as eye-opening as the next how do you call how do you pick your interview subjects and then call all of this down to, <laughs> to a workable film length well i had pretty good training as you mentioned with each hollywood story we did about 50 some episodes a year and i was in various capacities there as story editor and a, a executive producer eventually and so i got pretty used to uh, looking at scripts and tightening scripts and stories, but this one was definitely a challenge because we did have so many, we really had a dream team of orca experts from Mm -hmm. around the world and uh, uh, including Ingrid Visser from New Zealand, um, along with Naomi and Lori Marino and Charles Vinnick, who is the the, uh, executive director of uh, Whale Sanctuary Project, all of these people um, you know, no orcas like nobody else. And so, you know, they were extensive interviews, and it's just a matter of really zeroing in on what the very key points were that I thought we needed to communicate. And, uh, you know, hopefully we got, we got the message across very loud and clear. Well, I think you definitely did. You know, there's definite passion. Your passion comes through very crystal clear, concise, and and very deep-seated, deep-rooted passion for orcas. 
when, when, how did you develop your affinity, your love for orcas? I mean, you've, you've written uh, the children's book, Well, Lita, the world's loneliest orca. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so I'm just curious. It's, yeah, it's not, it, a passion like this is not something that somebody just wakes up with one day. What is it that, that drew you to these beautiful creatures? Well, one of the main reasons was uh, just before the incident with uh, Don Branchow and Tillicum, mm -hmm. uh, I had uh, been working on a novel about killer whales called Rogue Justice, mm -hmm. which is available on Amazon if anyone is interested. And which I just um, ordered. And it was about killer whales. And, uh, and I leased my place in L.A. I was working in television. I leased my place in L.A., and went to Port Townsend, Washington, to research and, and work on writing the book. And it was really there where I met a number of orca experts. I went out and saw orcas in the wild, and I realized, uh, you know, then and there that these were magnificent animals. I learned about their intelligence, their social being, uh, that they swim you know, often 100 miles a day and dive to depths of 300 feet how they communicate with one another, that they have feelings. And all of these things just led me to think the last place that orcas belong are in concrete tanks. And so that was really the beginning of it back as I, as I started uh, working on that book and writing the book. And I've always been an animal lover, so it, it kind of came naturally. Uh, it's, it's astounding. Um, you know, how did you and your cinematographer, Randall Love, um, go about obtaining, and you have some beautiful, beautiful footage here. You've got one sequence um, of whales out in the open, in the ocean. It's slow motion, slow motion close-ups of them arcing and the, and the dorsal fins coming up, a pair of them. Absolutely breathtaking. Were there any challenges presented in uh, obtaining fresh footage? particularly Rick's covert adventures in China, um, which that almost got people arrested. <laughs> As usual. That's, that's, that's Rick's trademark, that's, right? That's it. <laughs> Get, getting arrested. <laughs> um, the, the initial, the, the, the close-up of the, the orcas, that was from actually Jeff Foster and Katie Foster, um, it was their footage that we licensed, this beautiful, beautiful footage. That one orca that you see, the giant fin coming up in the, in the, in the close-up, the mm -hmm. slow motion you referred to. Yeah. Um, uh, Jeff estimated that that orca was like over 30 feet long. Wow. So it was an enormous uh, orca. Uh, as for Rick, uh, yes, it was, uh, it was a dicey... Uh, experience uh, that we had in China, and as he said, and he says on the film, it could going to jail in China could be really ugly, and we were right on the cusp of going to jail there. Um, we were surrounded by security. They kept calling in more security, and uh, uh, we were we were literally sweating bullets for ninety minutes, and and uh, it was uh, it was a very very situation to say the least well and, and i love how rick breaks it down and and analyzes it as only rick can do 
Uh, and he says, yeah, that he thinks that they, the Chinese let you guys go because rather than face the embarrassment and having to answer and respond to how was their security broken that you guys could just come wandering in there. <laughs> yes. Lucky for us that they felt that way because we knew uh, we knew we were trespassing, and uh, we knew it was it could potentially be dangerous. But we really wanted to try to find these uh, nine orcas that they had stashed away in this facility uh, away from the uh, marine theme park. And uh, we never did find them because we got uh, uh, discovered. We were discovered before we got to them, but uh, uh, we got close. Well, one of the great things that you do uh, with Long Gone Wild is you expose the Russian operation of whale capture for sale to the Chinese marine marine uh, theme parks. And that's something that people don't think about and they don't realize. Uh, I don't think anybody fully realizes um, the extent of these marine theme parks that are opening in China, the rapid rate that they're opening. At the time of filming, there were 58 Chinese uh, park, marine parks with performing cetaceans and other uh, sea creatures in China. Now there's, what, 82, 25 more being built? This is, uh, talk about rapid growth. Um, it's frightening. It's actually frightening when you think about it, how quickly this is sprouting up in China a country with billions of people. Yeah, it, it is, it's very disturbing. They now have uh, the latest count is 80, 80 marine theme parks with 20 under construction. They currently have 15 orcas in three of those parks, but they started uh, performances this past November at the park in Shanghai in a stadium that is half again bigger than anything SeaWorld had. Wow. And, of course, there's sellout crowds for every performance. So they know that this will drive audiences into the parks. And so the fear, of course, is that once one park starts and the others will follow and soon it'll be dozens and dozens of parks. And that the, the demand for orcas will continue, and the Russians are more than happy to supply them um, either uh, on the record or, or uh, in a stealth manner because they're worth so much money. They're getting right. uh, upwards of $7 million per whale. So wow. that leaves a lot of room for graft and corruption and paying people under the table and all of that. And so uh, it, it's very, very disturbing. How shocking was a lot of this information uh, as you discovered it, as it came to light for you in the process of making Long Gone Wild? Well, uh, the, the China situation was uh, was a, a real eye-opener. We were, as, as you know, we were over there. We, we, Rick and I were there with a, a small crew. And and just seeing the size of these parks and, and what's happening over there, um, it's, it's really hard, almost hard to believe. The Chinese uh, uh, expect their middle-class population to reach 800 million people over the next decade or so. 
And so they're building all of these entertainment venues uh, for that huge middle-class audience, Mm -hmm. which now have money where 15, 20 years ago, they really, the middle class really didn't exist. And there weren't a lot of people that had the money to go to these parks. And now they do. And so uh, your term frightening is, is absolutely spot on. You know, now, in terms of this film opening and distribution, any chance that Ch- it's going to be shown in China anywhere? <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's a great question. We do. It, the, the release date is tomorrow, mm-hmm. and uh, those who are interested can go to our website, longgonewild.com, and under the watch tab, uh, later today and early tomorrow morning, we will have direct links to all of the uh, VOD venues um, so they can find the film there. They can either rent uh, or buy it. Uh, at any of those. And um, uh, it was interesting that a woman at the Q&A who was Chinese uh, suggested uh, that the film that be, that, sub, that the film be subtitled in Chinese and that there are ways to get, you can't directly get to the Chinese people. They, they don't allow Google and 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 those sorts of entities over there. But apparently there is sort of an underground way to get to the young people. And her comment was that the young people would not uh, be in favor of uh, whales performing. They mm-hmm. want the country, they believe they want to be very progressive mm-hmm. uh, in everything that they do. And China is doing that in many ways. In, right. Uh, on climate change, on electric vehicles, and various other areas. And so um, the young people want to be progressive. And to have orcas performing is going back 50, 60 years is what SeaWorld started. So it's very regressive. Mm -hmm. And they want to be progressive. So hopefully we can get the film into that uh, network through sort of a, a back channel approach. You know, and I can tell people because I already went to the site that I know when you go to um, a Vimeo link for the film, you can rent it. It's available starting tomorrow. It's four ninety nine, or you can buy it and it's nine ninety nine. So, very inexpensive cost to see an amazing documentary. You know, what was the most challenging aspect of bringing this story to life for you, Bill? Given the the myriad of different stories that you have told. Um, and here you stepped in as director. It's really your first directorial credit for a project. Uh, what what was the most challenging aspect of bringing this to life? I think it was the, the, the biggest challenge was just bringing all of these experts together and weaving a story that was both entertaining and informative uh, and got the message across that succinctly that these whales um, do not belong in captivity. You know, um, um, Mahatma Gandhi, and we quote him in the film, said the greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be determined by the way it treats its animals. And I think if we treat our animals better, we might just treat each other better. And Lord knows the world needs this now, this country needs this now more than ever. And so I had all of this in mind as I was crafting this film, and I, I was 
the goal was to, to, to communicate to the audience that um, let's get these whales out of SeaWorld. There is now a place for them to go. And in the meantime, don't buy a ticket. That's uh, Rick. You, you mentioned Rick. I, I know you're a fan, and so am I. And that was the one thing that he said, don't buy a ticket over and over and over again. Yeah, I mean, I've interviewed Rick numerous times over the years going back uh, to before the Cove came out. And he and when that man looks into a camera and tells you don't buy a ticket, you believe this man. (laughs) You sure do. So what's next for you, Bill? Any more books on whales? Uh, You know what? Because you are you are also an author. A lot of people may not know that. But, uh, you know, you mentioned Rogue Justice, which I've already ordered. I'm waiting for it to come. I can't wait to, to get it and read it. Um, what oh, else? thank you. What's next on your plate? Well, I think right now my focus is over the next few months, we want to try to get the word out as much as we can on this film and, and have it resonate and, and reach as wide an audience as we can. And hopefully through that, um, people will speak up. The whales obviously don't have voices. We need to be their voices. And that's really my focus for the next several months. Beyond that, I've got a couple of other uh, documentary ideas in mind, uh, uh, unrelated to orcas, but but hopefully there will be a sequel to uh, Long Gone Wild in which we are with the Whale Sanctuary Project and we are following that first whale uh, from a concrete tank to a 100-acre cove that is netted off and uh, they can swim in their natural environment. That would be, I think, a thrill of a lifetime for any of us that love these animals. Well, that's what I'm waiting to see happen, is for that to happen and for all all the incarcerated, let's just call it what it is, incarcerated cetaceans to be moved uh, into that basic free-range situation. Um, Bill, exactly. I, I can't thank you enough, Bill. I hope you'll come back on the show again. You are an absolute joy. And uh, this is such an important documentary. It, and in the chain, as we go through the cove, Blackfish, now long gone wild, um, it is something that everyone needs to see and should see. Uh, website. Do we have a website? Yes, longgonewild, mm-hmm. all one word, dot com. And if I may, I'd like to give a shout out to our producing team, Michelle Wolke, William Rowan Jr., and Rachel Wheel, and also uh, Lisa Romanoff and Kristen Bedno at Vision Films. They've just been a, a joy to work with. And, uh, uh, and Annie Jeeves, uh, whom you know with um, <laughs> Cinematic Red, our publicist. So. My girl I Annie. Shout out to all of them. Oh, huh? I said, my girl Annie. Yeah, there you go. Oh, Bill, again, thank you so, so much. And I can't wait to talk to you again. David Lynn, thank you. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Bill. Bye bye. Talk to you later. Take care. Bye bye. And Long Gone Wild, available tomorrow. And. We mentioned Whale Sanctuary. How about Lion Sanctuary? Um, Quickly, before we go, um, 
The Lion King, there is a campaign going on between Disney and the Lion Recovery Fund for protecting the pride. Uh, and it's a global campaign to help <clears throat> save lions. Because since the original Lion King, the animated was released 25 years ago, half of Africa's lions have disappeared from the planet. So this is another wonderful, wonderful conservation, environmental uh, project in connection with film, uh, film, film, music, and causes. They all kind of go together. So you can also check out the Lion Recovery Fund uh, or through Disney, Lion King Protect the Pride. And again, Long Gone Wild for the Orcas. And then Bethany Hamilton, Unstoppable. That is all the time we have today. Uh, we'll be back next week with some surprises. I'm, until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. And remember, Hakuna Matata. <laughs> Thank you.